Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Good evening, children of the night. I am Stephen Kilpatrick, and I am happy to invite you into our cabin, deep in the woods of the Shenandoah, for a special episode of Tales to Terrify. We will be sharing with you the two winning stories for the Stoker Award for Superior Achievement in Short Fiction. We'll have you a little bit longer this evening than usual, but not by much, so settle in. First up, Rena Mason is the Bram Stoker Award-winning author of The Evolutionist and East End Girls, as well as a 2014 Stage 32 slash The Bloodlist presents The Search for New Blood Screenwriting Contest Finalist. A longtime fan of horror, sci-fi, science, history, historical fiction, mysteries, and thrillers, she began writing to mash up those genres and stories revolving around everyday life. She is a member of the Horror Writers Association, Mystery Writers of America, International Thrillers Writers, the International Screenwriters Association, Stage 32, as well as Inktip. She writes a column for the HWA Monthly Newsletter, Recently Born of Horrific Minds, and writes occasional articles. She also does volunteer work for the Horror Writers Association and event planning. An avid scuba diver, since 1988, she has traveled the world and enjoys incorporating the experiences into her stories. She currently resides in Reno, Nevada, with her family. The story that you will be hearing tonight that landed her a superior achievement with the Stokers is Ruminations, originally published in Qualia New by Written Backwards. Running late to catch the bus, Louisa kicked a raised part of the sidewalk, toes first. Merda. She winced, but managed to keep her balance. She stopped, raised her leg, and massaged her big toe through her canvas work shoes. Relieved to feel no broken bones, she lowered her foot, ignored the pain, and hurried to the bus stop. 
She shouldn't have tripped, but that's what happens when you're not paying attention. After walking the same way to work for the past eight months, she'd memorized every crack and weed in the 386 square concrete slabs from her apartment building to the covered bench where she sat and waited most days. Today, she woke up late after dreaming of the warring city, and keeping to a strict daily routine had been what saved her. The bus driver, a friendly middle-aged man named Toby, had waited for her with the door open. Thank you, she gasped. Toby smiled. Saw you coming. How's your foot? It's okay. Thanks. Good. He closed the door behind her and pulled away from the curb. She went to her usual spot on the bus, always empty an hour before sunrise. Nine rows back, opposite from where Toby sat, Louisa sidestepped her way to the window seat and plopped down. She pulled her hurt foot out of the shoe and examined the sub toe. Dark purplish blood spread out underneath most of the nail bed in the shape of a cloud. She shook her head, knowing the dead nail would eventually peel off on its own, leaving her with a raw, fragile toe. Louisa looked to the right at her reflection in the glass. See what you made me do, she whispered. Four months ago, Louisa noticed a girl who mimicked her every move in the window. The reflection looked much like her own, only younger. A girl in her late twenties, maybe. She had a bleak expression and fear in her eyes. It took two weeks of experimenting to convince herself the anomaly was real and not a trick of her mind or wishful thinking. She'd taken a mirrored compact from her purse and looked into it, glanced at the bus window and back again. The reflected images differed from one another. In her compact, she saw herself as she should be, a 48-year-old widower from Guatemala, lucky to get a job for, at her age for financial support, a woman with two sons, both adults in constant trouble with the law and presently serving time in the California prison system. For her own good and sanity, she didn't keep in touch, disappeared from their lives. Life would have been different if she'd had a daughter. Sadness showed on her face, but didn't compare to the young girl in the window. That girl's eyes expressed a fear she hadn't felt since first arriving in America. All the horrors Louisa had suffered through, she'd left behind in the jungle villages of the old country. The bus screeched and hissed. It had been still for ten seconds before Toby yelled back, Your stop, number twenty-two. Her stop had come too quickly. She shoved her foot into the shoe and glanced at the reflection before rising. This is your fault, too. At this rate, she might end up late to work, and that wouldn't be good. Too many others wanted her job. She passed Toby and thanked him. You sure you're all right? He said. I think that's the first time I've ever had to. Yes, I'm fine. Louisa hurried off the bus. It would be another 20-minute walk to the Motel 8 off I-5 near Old Sacramento. Instead of thinking about the younger Louisa, she tried counting cracks in the sidewalk. After 500, she gave up and jog-walked the rest of the way. This must stop. The girl in the window. I, I won't look at her anymore. Louisa arrived ten minutes after seven, late for the first time since she got the job. Jan, the shift supervisor, gave her a disappointed look when she handed over the color-coded room schedule. Louisa glimpsed the green circular sticker on the upper right corner of the paper 
and held back a groan. Floors 7 through 10, where they checked in most of the families with small children. Thank you, Louisa said, but she didn't mean it. If anyone finishes early, I'll send them up. Louisa nodded and headed for the service elevator. Knowing no one would come, everyone stalled to avoid helping clean the family rooms. The coveted blue room schedule, where single business people checked in, would be sorely missed today. They tended to be the neatest, with short stays, and on the first three floors. Sometimes the beds hadn't even been slept in. After loading up with supplies, she grabbed a vacuum and pushed the heavy cart down the hall to her first room. The door opened to a disaster area. Fast food containers with spilled contents lay strewn everywhere. Pasta noodles littered the floor next to the beds, some of them stepped on and smeared into the carpet. On average, it took 30 minutes to clean a blue room, 40 minutes into cleaning the green room, most of the time on her hands and knees, Louisa swore she'd never be late again. While running the vacuum over the carpet, now clear of items too soft or wet for the machine, something black darted across the front of the window in the corner of the room. She jumped a little, but kept her balance with a firm grip on the va vacuum's rubber handle, and continued to work. Ghost shadows often moved past her periphery in the hotel. If she ignored them, they'd go away. The other girls often told stories about people who died in the hotel rooms and scary things they saw at work during their lunches and over breaks. Louisa didn't listen to them. She kept to herself and stayed away from the gossip, knowing too much might frighten her and she needed the job. Being isolated from their conversation came with a price, though. Other employees took it the wrong way and stopped inviting her to potlucks and parties. Sometimes she wished they'd ask her again. Pushing the vacuum back and forth, she could tell the black thing hadn't moved. A knot of discomfort tightened her gut. The temperature dropped, sending chills down her spine. Maybe if she glanced at it, the ghost would be satisfied and disappear. She backed toward the door with the vacuum in front of her and looked up. It stood in the corner and pointed at the window. Louisa crossed herself, shook her head, and prayed in Spanish. The black thing had a human body. It took a step forward, then motioned its other hand for Louisa to come. Otoya attempted several sleeping positions while bombs exploded far off to the north of the city. Their decoy transport had worked again, but how long would their luck continue until the rebels cut on? The old woman who'd been coming at night to join the transport caravans for shelter needed Otoya's help, but also slowed her down. Then every morning she'd be gone again. Otoya didn't mind showing her the way, even though she didn't quite understand why. Anybody else might have let fall behind, but something about this woman reminded her of an important thing she couldn't explain. When the time came to move again by day, the same woman could be seen, but only in the window glass. Atoya thought in earlier times a different person might have looked back at her. Someone younger, more familiar, but the memory remained clouded. A lot of war had happened since then, and the glass was always broken now, or missing. Recently, she made it a point to sit in seats with more intact windows, 
so she might learn more about the woman. But the older lady stared and said nothing. A loud crash shattered her sleep. The transport went over something that lifted her out of the seat, and she banged her head against the metal frame. She rubbed her temple and opened her eyes. The older woman looked at her from a glass shard. How did she get there? Warm blood trickled down the side of Toya's face, which she wiped with her filthy jacket sleeve. This is because of you. Who are you talking to? A burly man said from the aisle, hunched over because he was too tall for the transport. No one, she said, then shouted to the driver, What is it, Deegan? Roadblock, they're coming in. Atoya rolled her eyes and pushed up her sleeve while the tall man went back to where he'd been sitting. A tattooed barcode appeared on her wrist with the numbers 12, 21, 9, 19, 1, imprinted underneath the lines. Her resistance identification. Four armed uniformed men boarded the transport and moved through the rows, checking each passenger. One soldier used a handheld scanner to inspect the barcodes, while the other three had their guns aimed at the passengers. Atoya knew the men wouldn't hesitate to fire if the reader failed to verify a code, even if it was a momentary glitch in the system. She'd seen many innocents of the resistance die this way. When they got to her, she recognized one of them. "'It's good to see you're still alive,' he said to her. She nodded. "'Don't move,' he said. The scanner's laser beam read her identification. Atoya held her breath and stared into his weapon's muzzle. If something happened, she knew he'd make it quick. When the green light came on, she exhaled. "'You never know,' the soldier said, and shrugged a reminder of how they'd all become indifferent to life and death. The men moved to the next person. On their way back, the familiar soldier stood next to her and shouted at the driver, Road bombs ahead. We'll send two cycles in front of you. Someone in the back groaned. I know it doesn't always work, but if the riders stay tight and move fast enough, they could trip a bomb, ride past it, and clear the way. It's all we can do, the soldier said. He looked down at Atoya and smiled. Try to keep alive. Where's the decoy traveling tonight? You know I can't tell you. She did, but it never hurt to ask. You'll be safe, he said, and gripped her shoulder. We need you in one piece for the genetics module transfer. The soldier released his hold and exited the transport. My father's memories and knowledge broken down and injected into my brain. It would happen soon. Atoya had been mentally preparing for it. Her mind would be a jumbled mess for a day or two, but then she'd have all the knowledge to create the genetic weapons her father had worked on before the rebels eliminated him. The rebels in resistance had warred for millennia. they destroyed many places and then moved on and ruined more. Her father had discovered a way to infect the enemy on a genetic level, a way to break down the chemicals that made them up. Atoya looked at the woman in the glass. My revenge. It's coming. Engines rattled and shook the transport as the driver put them back in gear. They'd soon be crossing terrain with hidden mines. She shifted in the seat, feeling anxious and warm. An enormous shadow surrounded them and loomed overhead. Some of the others strained their necks to the side and leaned their heads to look up. 
an air convoy hovered in the sky above. Louisa trembled, unable to move, as she stared wide-eyed at the black thing. Her focus remained on its face, and the features became more familiar. The girl from her reflection. But why was she at the motel? What happened to her? That's, Louisa said, go. The girl from the warring city motioned again for her to come forward. The blackness covering her had once been skin. She had been burned. The char split apart like hard-caked desert floor. Red showed between the cracks. Bloody, raw flesh. Louisa winced. Perhaps the girl wanted to tell her what happened. Louisa's foot resisted stepping forward. Tears welled in her eyes, and she shook her head. No. The girl didn't leave. Louisa took several deep breaths, trying to compose herself. Maybe she would pass out and the vision would go away. After several minutes of feeling nothing but dizziness and nausea, she looked down at the carpet to avoid seeing the girl. Louisa continued to shake, but keeping her focus elsewhere helped. Only then did her body allow her to step toward the window. Burnt feet and legs filled her periphery. She lifted her head and stopped. The girl pointed out the window. Louisa felt her body rise from the floor and float closer. Her body came to rest inches from the window, with her feet on the carpet. Reflections moved in the glass, but not the same way they did outside. The images differed. Cars sped across the I-5 in the distance, but up close what she saw in the window confused her. Louisa shifted her focus back and forth between the two scenes, and they didn't make sense. The reflected landscape had been destroyed. She recognized it now. The warring city. Charred bodies and remnants of an exploded bus littered a road. A large shadow blackened the scene. A rectangular airplane, like a floating semi-trailer, hovered above the carnage. Louisa moved closer, pressed her forehead against the glass. One of the burnt people came into focus, and Louisa gasped. The eyes! They'd been removed, but after the body had been burned. The sockets were nothing but dark caverns surrounded by bloody rims. Their empty depths extended to the back of the girl's skull. Her brain, everything, gone. Something covered in soot and hardly distinguishable had melded into the palm of the charred woman's hand. A black bag with white stars drawn on it. Como? she said, turning to the burnt woman for an answer. No one stood in the corner. They've sent an air convoy to protect us, Atoya said. Two men up front turned around and looked at her. The man in the back, who'd groaned earlier about the cycle, spoke up. Oh yeah, I'm sure it's here for me, because I dig trenches. Most valuable member of the resistance. <laughs> he laughed. His glare bore into her, but Atoya kept quiet. Yorn had always been a disagreeable bastard, but she didn't feel like getting up and kicking his ass. She rolled her eyes at the others, and they grinned, then returned to what they'd been doing. 
a sudden forward lurch, then back, and the transport traveled on. Air convoys tended to be an inaudible stalking shadow, loaded with weapons, explosives, and soldiers on the ready. The cycles, stripped down for speed, made a high-pitched whirring sound, but so far ahead they'd be silent. Cyclists had one weapon, a reaper caplet, to be taken if caught by the rebels. Everything remained quiet except for the transport, which needed a new suspension and bounced and squeaked over the bumpy terrain. A dull pop sounded from the road ahead. The transport jerked to a stop. Everyone stood and looked forward. Plumes of smoke had shot into the air. The air convoy moved forward to investigate. Deeg, the transport driver, turned up his signal receiver. Loud static, then a voice. Cyclist triggered a mine, sped past, both unharmed. Everyone clapped and cheered. The tall man looked at Atoya and winked. Stop it, Deegan shouted. I need the numbers. When it quieted, the air convoy's navigator relayed land coordinates for Deeg to follow in order to avoid the massive road hall left by the bomb. All fifteen passengers scrambled to find openings to look through when they went around the exploded mess. Shadows made by the transport stretched farther across the road and crept onto the land. Soon it would be dark. Atoya knew she'd come. The woman who reminded her of something she did not understand. Her mother had died giving birth. Her father disappeared into the laboratories after that. Raised by soldiers and other members of the resistance who cared for her while her father found a way to destroy the rebels. She knew nothing else. At the first transport stop, the final checkpoint before leaving again for a safe place to spend the night, Otoya saw the woman in line. She had something clutched to her chest and a look of fear on her face. The people in front of her had rolled up their sleeves ready to be scanned. Before the woman moved, Otoya approached. The stranger turned to her and spoke in an unfamiliar language. Otoya took the foreigner by the arm, leaned in and shushed her. The woman nodded. Together, they walked away from the end of the line to an isolated area around the side of the checkpoint. The woman whispered gibberish and reached into the bag she had a death grip on earlier. Atoya paused, and the stranger recognized her hesitation, stopped talking, and smiled. She took something Atoya had never seen before from a carryall. Yellow, long, and curved. The woman pulled the top back, and Atoya jumped a little. This made the stranger giggle, but Atoya didn't think it funny and would have snapped the woman's neck if she thought her dangerous. The woman peeled the sides down and took a bite, chewed, smiled again, and handed the thing over. Atoya took the yellow thing out of respect, smelling it. Slow and cautious at first, she took a few bites, and a pasty sweetness of exotic flavor filled her mouth. Then she devoured the yellow thing with ravenous fervor. The foreigner smiled and appeared satisfied. Atoya reached into her black carryall. She'd used white stones found roadside during one of her transport trips to decorate it with stars. Drawing had always been one of her favorite things to do. Many people of the Resistance had complimented her on the beautiful sketches she'd created from the ashes of the ruined cities. The woman watched and inspected the bag. A soldier startled both women. He'd been the familiar one. Atoya didn't know his name, didn't want to. She'd seen too many soldiers disappear from her life, 
and she liked this one. What are you doing over here? He said. Helping this woman. What is in your hand? The skin of something I ate. Atoya let it drop to the ground. It's time to go. Can you get us both on the transport? Of course. Atoya looked up at the soldier in the most seductive way she knew how. Without going through the line, I mean. But... Please, I'm begging you. It's important. She's with me. The woman stood silent and unmoving, waiting as if she had done this before. You know I can't. Then I'll stay here. Damn it, you're stubborn. Toya smiled. Come on, then. The soldier escorted them to the bus with his weapon pointed ahead. You look very official. What's your name? I've seen you for years, and now you ask me my name? You're helping me. Yes, I'm asking your name. Vento. I like it. Thank you for helping us, Vento. Who is she? Vento nodded at the old woman. No questions. Maybe I'll tell you after the module injection. You might forget. Then I forget. Maybe you should, too. None of the other soldiers questioned Vinto when he escorted the two women onto the transport. Atoya took a seat next to some window glass. No reflection appeared. Maybe because of the darkness? Maybe because she's here? The foreigner sat next to her and smiled. An hour into the ride, the woman's head rested against her shoulder. She'd fallen asleep. And eventually, Atoya did the same. Yorn eyed the two from the back and wondered about the strange woman Atoya had picked up at the checkpoint. For the last few weeks he'd noticed she had come and gone like a ghost. Perhaps the woman had been sent to further protect Atoya. He wondered what weapons she carried. It took Louisa into overtime to finish cleaning the green rooms. No one helped, not even Jan. During lunch the other women kept to themselves. Louisa spent the entire day working slower than normal and thinking of the young girl. Why had she been burnt, killed? Whether or not she came to warn her, or if she just lost her mind and imagined it all. With thoughts of the girl on her mind, Louisa almost walked past the bus stop. The deafening rattling of the engine snapped her out of the daze. The late afternoon bus drivers changed every other day. She slid her pass and chose a different seat than normal, but it didn't matter. Moments later, the younger version of the woman appeared in the glass, uncharred and undamaged. She looked happier. Louisa wondered what made her smile, and knew it wasn't her own reflection. Smiles didn't come often. Happiness was far away, perhaps in a distant past. Exhaustion, for sure, but not happiness. When she got home, Louisa reheated leftovers and ate with the television on, then showered and went to bed. Sleep came late, even though she'd been tired and would have passed out before dinner had it not been for the beeping microwave. The warring city exploded into her dreams, bombs and gunfire in the distance, ruined places, Louisa waiting in line. The girl took Louisa by the arm and walked her to the side of a building, 
Soldiers scanned the arms of those at the front of the line. Louisa knew she wouldn't pass. She tried to explain about seeing her burnt ghost and thanked the young doppelganger for protecting her, but in her dreams Louisa spoke Spanish. The people of the warring city spoke a language she'd never heard before. For the first time in her dreams, Louisa brought her purse. The girl looked thin and hungry, so she'd reached in and found a banana. The girl jumped as Louisa peeled it, which made her laugh. The girl carried a bag too, but it looked like a backpack for school black with white, hand-drawn, childlike stars. Louisa somehow knew this girl had been deprived of a childhood, and she wanted to make it right. The chance to have a daughter, even if only in her dreams. One of the soldiers approached and startled them. Louisa could tell he liked the girl, and maybe the girl had felt something for the soldier, too. He helped them bypass the line and onto an old bus with boarded windows and torn seats. In the back, a strange man watched the young girl. Louisa didn't like the way he stared. Blaring electronic sounds jolted Louisa awake. The dream world dissolved as she opened her eyes. She turned off her alarm clock, then started her daily routine. For the first time since her husband had died, looking around and counting were far from her mind as she made her way to the bus stop. The man at the back of the bus occupied her thoughts. The last bit of dream she remembered. His expression disturbed her. "'You sure you're okay?' Toby said, looking concerned. Louisa slid her pass, and a wave of vertigo forced her to grab the metal handrail. "'Give me a minute!' Louisa recovered and went to her seat, hoping to see the girl. Stars from the vertigo blurred her vision of the window. Stars! The backpack! The girl dies! I, Mia, she whispered to the glass. Tears welled and rolled down her cheeks. The thought of losing her dream daughter, she touched the cool window. Where could you be? She'd been asleep on that bus before Louisa woke up. If only she could go back and warn her. Louisa arrived at work before anyone else. Jan had still been working on the room schedule when Louisa went into her office. You're early, Jan said. Making up for yesterday. Nice job on the green rooms, by the way. Thank you. Jan handed her the blue room schedule. Here you go. Early bird gets the worm. Louisa smiled, but felt disrespected that Jan likened her to a bird eating a worm. She shook her head and left the office. Every time she'd unlocked one of the doors, Louisa looked in the windows for signs of the girl. All day she worked and saw nothing. Then, in the last room, she pulled the sheer curtains together and saw the girl in the reflection. The scene was the same as before, a total massacre of blackened, twisted metal an enormous blast scar toward the back of the old bus. She recognized it now, and her burnt dream daughter, with her eyes and everything inside her skull removed. The image horrified Louisa. She crossed herself and looked away. The sky rained soldiers. They fell from the floating tractor trailer. As soon as they touched ground, one of them ran to the young girl's body. He dropped to his knees 
and hid his tears from the other men. His face was familiar, even through the grimace. The soldier who had helped Louisa and the girl get on the old bus. He took a vial from his pocket and popped off the lid, then poured a liquid over the charred body. She glowed bright green from head to toe, then crumpled to ash. Louisa crossed herself again. Her knees buckled and gave way. She fell to the floor and wailed. The memories transfer injection went well. Atoya remained groggy and couldn't recall much about the ordeal. She'd been attached to a mess of wires while science team members spoke over one another and shined bright lights into her eyes. Even though a part of her father had been injected into her, she felt no closer to him than she had before. The disconnection made her sad, and melancholy followed her as she drifted off to sleep. She remembered Vinto smiling down at her, telling her everything would be all right. Atoya sensed him nearby. She forced her eyes open to the shadow of the air convoy above. She picked up on Vinto, but perceived nothing from her father's memories. She would be happy to see the older woman again, but knew she needed rest before her arrival to help her get on the transport. Atoya looked forward to the warmth of her body sitting next to her. The foreign woman comforted Atoya and made her feel safe. The next time she woke, they'd stopped at a checkpoint. Atoya got off the bus and looked around. Relief coursed through her, and she smiled when she saw the older woman waiting at the side of the building. Atoya neared, and the foreigner approached her with happiness. She opened her arms and wrapped them around Atoya. Atoya didn't understand the physical greeting. Then a look of dread came across the woman's face. As they walked back to the side of the building, the woman's incessant gibberish intensified. Atoya stopped, placed her hands on the woman's shoulders, and, in a calm, clear voice, told her everything would be all right. The foreigner relaxed then reached into her bag and took out another one of those yellow things. Atoya accepted and wolfed it down. Once more, Minto escorted them onto the transport. The old woman nudged Atoya forward, so she walked next to him. How long will it take to get to the lab? Not long. Two moons. Why not suns? Suns, moons, same thing. Atoya smiled at him. How are you feeling? He said. Good. Are you ready to end this? Endings also mean beginnings. Vinto leaned over and kissed her cheek. Atoya turned around. The old woman had a big smile across her face. Atoya felt weak as soon as they sat in the transport. Vinto loaded up into the air convoy after walking them to their seats. The old woman held Atoya close as the transport moved on. An explosion jarred Atoya from sleep. Chaos had erupted on the transport. The old woman stood her upright, pushed her into the aisle, shoving her to the front. Frightened, Atoya grabbed the rails. She got caught among others fleeing the transport. Deegan's throat had been slit. Blood spray covered everything. Forceful hands pushed her toward the door. The old woman was no longer behind her. Atoya grabbed the handrail, dug her boots into the rubber padding on the floor, and held her ground. The old woman struggled with Yorn. He held a blade and brought it down into her chest. 
Atoya screamed. The old woman looked back, yelled at Atoya, and then pulled something in Yorn's coat. The tall man in back shouted, He's got mines! Everyone pushed in a wave. Atoya lost her grip and flew out the doorway. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Life is full of what-ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Louisa didn't trust the man in the back of the bus. She'd awakened before the crash and saw him kill the driver. She pretended to be asleep like everyone else. He hurried back to his seat and waited for the bus to hit something and cause a commotion. Louisa knew he wanted to hurt the young girl, take her eyes and brain. She couldn't let it happen. As soon as the bus crashed, Louisa got the girl up and pushed her into the moving crowd, then ran to the back and tackled the man, hoping he hit his head and get knocked out. That didn't happen. While Louisa fought him, she felt things under his coat. They reminded her of grenades she'd seen government forces use during her country's civil war. Then the man stabbed. Adrenaline pumped so hard through her body, the pain distanced. Louisa thought of the young girl. She saw her and shouted, Te amo, mi hija! And pulled a pin from one of the devices in the man's jacket. His eyes widened. Louisa pulled him close, forcing the knife deeper into her chest. She held him with a strength she'd never known. Then all went silent before bright light swallowed. Atoya awoke on something soft, but itchy green. She sat up and moved her palm across the tips, and they tickled her skin. She rolled over and saw the old woman's carryall. Atoya lay there, admiring a blue sky that was familiar and yet not quite. She wondered if it might have been one of her father's memories. Tall buildings surrounded her, still intact and new. 
concrete flesh instead of steel and brick skeletons she'd been more accustomed to seeing. Dark shadows took shape and descended from the clouds in a formation she recognized. Rebel air convoys filled the sky. Otoya rose and ran with the old woman's bag clutched in her hands. She needed to find safety, and a lab where she could wait for the resistance, and Vinto. They would help her. The memories of her father would save this world. That was Rena Mason's Ruminations, as read by her own editor, Philip Oldham. Philip Oldham is a Colorado native, a jack-of-all-trades, working in everything from construction to retail to IT. He's currently working on getting his degree in English and digital media production, living near Denver with Sweeney Todd, the psycho cannibal cat. Philip enjoys reading, gaming, and figuring out how to not burn his kitchen down while making something delicious. He's joined the district with the hope of giving something back to the podcast and the community, which has brought such fun and adventure to his life. Our second story of the night is from Usman T. Malik. Usman T. Malik is a Pakistani vagrant camped in Florida. He reads Sufi poetry, likes long walks, and occasionally strums na'ats on the guitar. His fiction has won the Bram Stoker Award and has been nominated for The Nebula. His stories have appeared, or are forthcoming, in The Year's Best Dark Fantasy and Horror, The Year's Best YA Speculative Fiction, The Best Science Fiction and Fantasy of the Year, Year's Best Weird Fiction, Tor.com, The Apex Book of World SF, Nightmare, Strange Horizons, and Black Static, among other venues. He is a graduate of Clarion West. In December 2014, Usman led Pakistan's first speculative fiction workshop in Lahore in conjunction with Desi Writers Lounge and Liberty Books. Our story for the night will be the vaporization enthalpy of a peculiar Pakistani family. The solid phase of matter is a state wherein a substance is particularly bound. To transform a solid into a liquid, the intermolecular forces need to be overcome which may be achieved by adding energy. The energy necessary to break such bonds is, ironically, called the heat of fusion. On a Friday after Juma prayers, under the sturdy old oak in their yard, they came together as a family for the last time. Her brother gave in and wept as Tara watched, eyes prickling with warmth that wouldn't disperse no matter how much she knuckled them or blinked. Monsters, Sohail said, his voice raspy. He wiped his mouth with the back of his hand and looked at the sky, a vast whiteness cobblestoned with heat. The ploughed wheat fields beyond the step on which their house perched were baked and khaki and shivering a little under Tara's feet. An earthquake or a passing vehicle on the highway. Perhaps it was foreknowledge that made her dizzy. She pulled at her lower lip and said nothing. Monsters, Sohail said again. Oh God, Abi, murderers. She reached out and touched his shoulders. I'm sorry. She thought he would pull back. When he didn't, she let her fingers fall and linger on the flame-shaped scar on his arm. So it begins, she thought. How many times has this happened before, pushing and prodding us repeatedly until the night swallows us whole? She thought of that until her heart constricted with dread. Don't do it, she said. Don't go. So he lifted his shoulders and drew back his head, watched her wonderingly as if seeing her for the first time. I know I ask too much, she said. 
I know the customs of honor, but for the love of God, let it go. One death needn't become a lodestone for others. One horror needn't... But he wasn't listening, she could tell. They would not hear nor see nor smell once the blood was upon them. Didn't the scriptures say so? So he'll heard, but he didn't listen. His conjoined eyebrows, like dark hands held, twitched. Her name meant a rose, he said, and smiled. It was beautiful, that smile, heartbreaking, frightening. Under the mango trees by Chacha Barkat's farm, Gulmine told me that as I kissed her hand, whispered it in my ear, her fingers circling my temple. A rose blooming in the rain. Did you know that? Tara didn't. The sorrow of his confession filled her now as it did the certainty of his leaving. Yes, she lied, looking him in the eyes. God, his eyes looked awful, webbed with red, with thin tendrils of steam rising from them. A rose God gave us and took away because he loved her so. Wasn't God, Sohail said, and rubbed his fingers together. The sound was insectile. Monsters. He turned his back to her and was able to speak rapidly. I'm leaving tomorrow morning. I'm going to the mountains. I will take some bread and dried meat. I will stay there until I'm shown a sign. And once I am... His back arched, then straightened. He had lost weight. His shoulder blades poked through the khadar shirt like trowels. I will arise and go to their homes. I will go to them as God's wrath. I will... She cut him off, her heart pumping fear through her body like poison. What if you go to them and die? What if you go to them like a steer to the slaughter and Ma and I, what if months later we sit here and watch a dusty vehicle climb the hill, bouncing a sack of meat in the back seat that was once you? What if? But she couldn't go on giving name to her terrors. Instead, she said, if you go, know that we as we are now will be gone forever. He shuddered. We were gone when she was gone. We were shattered with her bones. The wind picked up. A whipping, chadar-lifting, sultry gust that made Tara's flesh prickle. So Hale began to walk down the steps, each with its own crop. Tobacco, corn, rice stalks wavering in knee-high water. And as she watched his lean farmer body move away, it seemed to her as if his back was not drenched in sweat, but acid. That his flesh glistened not from moisture, but blood. All at once their world was just too much or not enough. Tara couldn't decide which. And the weight of that unseen future weighed her down until she couldn't breathe. My brother, she said, and began to cry. You're my little brother. So he'll continued walking his careful dead man's walk until his head was a wobbling black pumpkin rising from the last step. She watched him disappear in the undulations of her motherland, helpless to stop the fatal fracturing of her world, wondering if he would stop or doubt or look back. So he'll never looked back. Ma died three months later. The village menfolk told her the death prayer was brief and moving. Tara couldn't attend because she was a woman. The villagers helped her bury Ma's sorrow-filled body and the rotund mullah clucked and murmured over the fresh mound. The women embraced her and crooned and urged her to vent. Weep, our daughter, they cried, for the children's tears of love are like manna for the departed. Tara tried to weep and felt guilty when she couldn't. Ma had been sick and in pain for a long time and her hastened death was a mercy, but she couldn't say that out loud. Besides, the women had said children and Sohail wasn't there. Not at the funeral, not during the days after. Tara dared not wonder where he was, nor imagine his beautiful face gleaming in the dark atop a stony mountain, persevering in his vigil. What will you do now? they asked, gathering around her with sharp, interested eyes. She knew what they really meant. A young widow with no family was a stranger amidst her clan. At best an oddity, at worst a ripe seductress. 
She was surprised to discover that concern didn't frighten her. The perfect loneliness of it, the inadvertent exclusion, they were just more beads in the tautening string of her life. I'm thinking of going to the city, she told them. Ma has a cousin there. Perhaps he can help me with bread and board while I look for work. She paused, startled by a clear memory. Sohail and Gulmine by the Kunhar River, fishing for trout. Gulmini's sequined hijab dappling in the stream with emerald as she reached down into the water with long, pale fingers. Sohail grinning his stupid lover's grin as his small hands encircled her waist, and Tara watching them from the shade of the eucalyptus fond and jealous. By then, Tara's husband was long gone, and she could forgive herself the occasional resentment. She forced the memory away. Yes, I think I might go to the city for a while. She laughed. The sound rang hollow and strange in the emptiness of her tin and timber house. Who knows, I might even go back to school. I used to enjoy reading once. She smiled at these women with their hateful, sympathetic eyes that watched her cautiously as they would a rabid animal. She nodded, talking mostly to herself. Yes, that would be good. Hashim would have wanted that. They drew back from her, from her late husband's mention. Why not, she thought. Everything she touched fell apart. Everyone around her died or went missing. There was no judgment here, just dreadful awe. She could allow them that, she thought. The liquid phase of matter is a restless volume that, by dint of the vast spaces between its molecules, fills any container it is poured in and takes its shape. Liquids tend to have higher energy than solids, and while the particles retain interparticle forces, they have enough energy to move relative to each other. The structure therefore becomes mobile and malleable. In the city, Tara turned feral in her pursuit of learning. This had been long coming and it didn't surprise her at all. At 13, she had been withdrawn from school. She needed not homework but a husband, she was told. At 16, she was wedded to Hashim. He was blown to smithereens on her 21st birthday, a suicide attack on his unit's northern checkpost. I want to go to school, she told Vasif Khan, her mother's cousin. They were sitting in his six-by-eight yard, peeling fresh oranges he had confiscated from an illegal food vendor. Vasif was a police havildar and on the rough side of 60. He often said confiscation was his first love and contraband second. He grinned when he said that, which made it easier for her to like him. Now Vasif tossed a half-gnawed chicken bone to his spotted mongrel and said, I don't know if you want to do that. I do. You need a husband, not... I don't care. I need to go back to school. But why? He dropped an orange rind in the basket at his feet, gestured with a large liver-spotted hand. The city doesn't care if you can read. Besides, you can housekeep for me. I'm old and ugly and useless, but I have this tolerable house and no children. You're my cousin's daughter. You can stay here forever if you like. In a different time, she might have mistaken his generosity for loneliness, but now she understood it for what it was. Such was the way of age. It melted prejudice or hardened it. I want to learn about the world, she said. I want to see if there are others like me, if there have been others before me. He was confused. Like you, how? She rubbed an orange peel between her fingers, pressing the fibrous texture of it in the creases of her flesh, wondering how much to tell him. Her mother had trusted him, yet Ma hardly had their gift, and if she did, Tara doubted she would have been open about it. Ma had been wary of giving too much of herself away, a trait she passed on to both her children among other things. So now Tara said, others who need to learn more about themselves. I spent my entire childhood being just a bride and look, I'm left with nothing, no children, no husband, no family. Vasif Khan looked hurt. She smiled kindly. You know what I mean, uncle, I love you, but I need to love me too. 
Vasif Khan tilted back his head and pinched a slice of orange above his mouth, squeezing it until his tongue and remaining teeth gleamed with the juice. He closed his eyes, sighed and nodded. I don't know if I approve, but I think I understand. He lifted his hand and tousled his own hair thoughtfully. It's a different time. Others my age who don't realize it don't fare well. The traditional rules don't apply anymore, you know. Sometimes I think that's wonderful. Other times it feels like the whole damn world is conspiring against you. I understand. She rose, picking up her mess and his. Thank you for letting me stay here. It's either you or every hookah sucking asshole in this neighborhood for company. He grinned and shrugged his shoulders. My apologies. I've been living alone too long and my tongue is spoilt. She laughed loudly and thought of a blazing cliff somewhere from which dangled two brown peeling inflamed legs swinging back and forth like human pendulums. She read everything she could get her hands on. At first, her alphabet was broken and awkward as was her rusty brain, but she did it anyway. It took her 2 years, but eventually she qualified for FA examinations and passed on her first try. I don't know how you did it, Vasif Khan said to her, his face beaming at the neighborhood children as he handed out specially prepared sweetmeat to eager hands, but I'm proud of you. She wasn't, but she didn't say it. Instead, Once the children left, she went to the mirror and gazed at her reflection, flexing her arm, making her flame-shaped scar bulge. We all drink the blood of yesterday, she thought. The next day, she enrolled at Punjab University's BSc program. In biology class, they learned about plants and animals, flora and fauna, they called them. Things constructed piece by piece from the basic units of life, cells. These cells in turn were made from tiny building blocks called atoms which were bonded by the very things that repelled their core, electrons. In physics class, she learned about electrons, little flickering ghosts that vanished and reappeared as they pleased. Her flesh was empty, she discovered, or most of it. So were human bones and solid buildings in the incessantly agitated world. All that immense loneliness and darkness with only a hint that we existed. The idea awed her. Did we exist only as a possibility? In Vasif Khan's yard was a tall mulberry tree with saw-like leaves. On her way to school, she touched them. They were spiny and jagged. She hadn't eaten mulberries before. She picked a basketful, nipped her wrist with her teeth, and let her blood roast a few. She watched them curl and smoke from the heat of her jeans, inhaled the sweet steam of their juice as they turned into mystical symbols. Mama would have been proud. She ate them with salt and pepper and was offended when Vasif Khan wouldn't touch the remaining. He said they gave him reflux. The gaseous phase of matter is one in which particles have enough kinetic energy to make the effect of intermolecular forces negligible. A gas, therefore, will occupy the entire container in which it is confined. Liquid may be converted to gas by heating at constant pressure to a certain temperature. This temperature is called the boiling point. the worst flooding the province had seen in 40 years wasif khan hadn't confiscated a television yet but if he had thought i was sure it would show the same cataclysmic damage to life and property at one point someone said an area the size of england was submerged in raging flood water wasif's neighborhood in the northern hillier part of town escaped the worst of the devastation but tara and wasif witnessed it daily when they went for rescue work massive upchucked power pylons and a splintered oak tree smashing through the marketplace stalls 
Murderous tin sheets and iron rods slicing through the inundated streets. Bloated dead cows and sheep eddying in shoulder-high water with terrified children clinging to them. It bored at the towering steel and concrete structures, this restless liquid death that had come to the city. It ripped out their underpinnings and annihilated everything in its path. Tara survived these days of heartbreak and horror by helping to set up a small tent city on the sports fields of her university. She volunteered to establish a nursery for lost or displaced children and went with rescue teams to scour the ruins for usable supplies and corpses. As she pulled out the dead and living from underneath the wreckage, as she tossed plastic-wrapped food and dry clothing to the dull-eyed homeless, she thought of how bright and hot and dry the spines of her brother's mountains must be. It had been four years since she saw him, but her dreams were filled with his absence. Did he sit parched and caved in like a deliberate Buddha, or was he dead and pecked on by ravens and falcons? She shuddered at the thought and grabbed another packet of cooked rice and dry beans for the benighted survivors. The first warning came on the last night of Ramzan, Chandrat. Tara was eating bread and lentils with her foundling children in the nursery when it happened. A bone-deep trembling that ran through the grass, flattening its blades, evaporating the evening dew sitting on them. Seconds later, a distant boom followed, a hollow rumbling that hurt Tara's ears and made her feel nauseated. Later, she would learn that the blast had torn through the marble-walled shrine of Data Sahib, wrenching its iron fence from its moorings, sending jagged pieces of metal and scorched human limbs spinning across the walled part of the city. Her children sat up, confused and scared. She soothed them. Once a replacement was found, she went to talk to the tent city administrator. I've seen this before, she told him once he confirmed it was a suicide blast. My husband and sister-in-law both died in similar situations. That was not entirely true for Gulmine, but close enough. Usually one such attack is followed by another when rescue attempts are made. My husband used to call them double-tap attacks. She paused, thinking of his kind, dearly loved face for the first time in months. He understood the psychology behind them well. The administrator, a chubby short man with filthy cheeks, scratched his chin. How come? He was a ranger. He tackled many such situations before he died. Condolences, Bibi. The administrator's face crinkled with sympathy. But what does that have to do with us? At some point, they will use the double tap as decoy and come after civilian structures. Thank you for the warning. I'll send out word to form a volunteer parameter patrol. He scrutinized her. Taking in her hijab, the bruised elbows and the grimy fingernails from days of work. God bless you for the lives you've saved already, for the labor you've done. He handed her a packet of boiled corn and alphabet books. She nodded absently, the charred bodies and boiled human blood swirling up from the shrine in her head. Thanked him and left. The emergency broadcast 30 minutes later confirmed her fear. A second blast at Data Sahib obliterated a fire engine killed a jeep full of eager policemen and vaporized 25 rescuers. Five of these were female medical students. Their shattered glass bangles were melted and their headscarves burnt down to unrecognizable gunk by the time the EMS came. Tara wept when she heard. In her heart was a steaming shadow that whispered nasty things. It impaled her with its familiarity and a dreadful suspicion grew in her that the beast was rage and wore a face she knew well. 
When matter is heated to high temperatures, such as in a flame, electrons begin to leave atoms. At very high temperatures, essentially all electrons are assumed to be dissociated, resulting in a unique state wherein positively charged nuclei swim in a raging sea of free electrons. This state is called the plasma phase of matter and exists in lightning, electric sparks, neon lights, and the sun. In a rash of terror attacks, the city quickly fell apart. The Tower of Pakistan, the Shrine of Jinnah, Iqbal's Memorial, Shalimar Gardens, Anarkali's Tomb, and the 14 gates of the walled city. They exploded and fell in burning tatters, survived only by a quivering blood haze through which peeked the haunted eyes of their immortal ghosts. This is death. This is love. This is the comeuppance of the two as the world, according to you, will finally come to an end. So snarled the beast in Tara's head each night. The tragedy of the floodwaters was not over yet. And now this. Tara survived this new world through her books and her children. The two seemed to have become one, pages filled with unfathomable loss. White space itching to be written, reshaped or incinerated. Sometimes she would bite her lips and let the trickle of blood stain her calloused fingers, would touch them to water-spoiled paper and watch it catch fire and flutter madly in the air, aflame like a phoenix, an impossible glamour created by tribulation. So when the city burned and her tears burned, Tara reminded herself of the beautiful emptiness of it all and forced herself to smile. Until one morning she awoke and discovered that, in the cover of night, a suicide teenager had hit her tent city's parameter patrol. After the others had left, she stood over her friend's graves in the twilight. Kites and vultures unzipped the darkness above in circles, lost specks in this ghostly desolation. She remembered how cold it was when they lowered Gulmine's remains into the ground, how the drone attack had torn her limbs clean off so that, along with a head shriveled by heat, a glistening, misshapen, idiot torso remained. She remembered Ma, too, and how she was killed by her son's love, the first of many murders. I know you, she whispered to the beast resident in her soul. I know you. And all the time she scribbled on her flesh with a glass shard she found buried in a patrolman's eye. Her wrist glowed with her heat in that of her ancestors. She watched her blood bubble and surge skyward to join the plasma of the world and drift its soft, vaporous way across the darkened city. And she wondered again if she was still capable of loving them both. The administrator promised her that he would take care of her children. He gave her food and a bundle of long shirts and shalwars. He asked her where she was going and why, and she knew he was afraid for her. I will be all right, she told him. I know someone who lives up there. I don't understand why you must go. It's dangerous, he said, his flesh red under the hollows of his eyes. He wiped his cheeks. I wish you didn't have to, but I suppose you will. I see that in your face. I saw that when you first came here. She laughed. The sound of her own laughter saddened her. The world will change, she said. It always does. We are all empty, but this changing is what saves us. That is why I must go. He nodded. She smiled. They touched hands briefly. She stepped forward and hugged him, her headscarf tickling his nostrils, making him sneeze. She giggled and told him how much she loved him and the others. He looked pleased, and she saw how much kindness and gentleness lived inside his skin, how his blood would never boil with undesired heat. She lifted his finger, kissed it, wondering at how solid his vacant flesh felt against her lips. Then she turned and left him, leaving the water and the fire and the crackling, hissing earth of the city behind. Such was how Tara Khan left for the mountains.
The journey took a week. The roads were barren, the landscape abraded by flood water and flensed by intermittent fires. Shocked trees stripped of fruit stood rigid and receding as Tara's bus rolled by, their gnarled limbs pointing accusatorily at the heavens. Wrapped in her chadar, headscarf and shalwar kameez, Tara folded into the rugged barrenness with its rugged people. They were not unkind even in the midst of this madness. They held on to their deeply honored tradition of hospitality, allowing Tara to scout for hints of the beast's presence. The northerners chatted constantly and were horrified by the atrocities blooming from within them and because she too spoke Pashto they treated her like one of them Tara kept her ears open rumors whispers beckonings by skeletal fingers someone said there was a man in Abbottabad who was the puppeteer another shook his head and said that was a deliberate shadow show a gaudy interplay of light and dark put up by the real perpetrators that the supreme conspirator was swallowed by earth soaked with the blood of thousands and lived only as an extension of this irredeemable evil tara listened and tried to read between their words slowly the hints in the midnight alleys the leprous grins the desperate clutching fingers incinerated trees and the smoldering human and animal skulls they began to come together and form a map tara followed it into the heart of the mountains when the elementary particle boson is cooled to temperatures near absolute zero a dilute gas is created under such conditions a large number of bosons occupy the lowest quantum state and an unusual thing happens quantum effects become visible on a macroscopic scale this effect is called the macroscopic quantum phenomena and the bose-einstein condensate is inferred to be a new state of matter the presence of one such particle the higgs boson was tentatively confirmed on march 14th 2013 in the most complex experimental facility built in human history this particle is sometimes called the god particle when she found him he had changed his name There is a story told around campfires since the beginning of time. Millennia ago, a stone fell from the infinite bosom of space and plunked onto a statistically impossible planet. The stone was round and smaller than a pebble of goat shit and carried a word inscribed on it. It has been passed down generations of Pahari clans that the word is the Isme-Azam, the most high name of God. Every sect in the history of our world has written about it. Egyptians, Mayans, Jewish, Christian and Muslim mystics. Some have described it as the primal point from which existence began and that the universal essence lives in this nukta. The closest approximation to the first word, some say, is one that originated in Mesopotamia, the land between the two rivers. The Sumerians called it Anunnaki, he of godly blood. Tara thought of this oral tradition and sat down at the mountain of the demolished cave. She knew he lived inside the cave, for every living and non-living thing near it reeked of his heat. Twisted boulders stretched granite hands towards its mouth like pilgrims at the Kaaba. The heat of the stars they carried in their genes, in the sputtering, whisking emptiness of their cells had leached out and warped the mountains and the path leading up to it. Tara sat cross-legged in the lotus position her mother taught them both when they were young. She took a sharp rock and ran it across her palm. Crimson droplets appeared and evaporated, leaving a metallic tang in the air. She sat and inhaled that smell and thought of the home that once was. She thought of her mother and her husband of Gulmine and Sohail of the floods. Did he have something to do with that too? Did his rage liquefy snow-topped mountains and drown an entire country? 
of suicide bombers and the university patrol and of countless human eyes that flicked each moment towards an unforgiving sky where something merciful may or may not live and her eyes began to burn and Tara Khan began to cry come out she said between her sobs come out beast come out rage come out death of the two worlds and all that lives in between come out monster come out fear And all the while she rubbed her eyes and let the salt of her tears crumble between her fingertips. Sadly, she looked at the white crystals, flattened them and screamed, "Come out, Anunnaki!" And in a belch of shrieking air and a blast of heat, her brother came to her. They faced each other. His skin was gone. His eyes melted, his nose bridge collapsed. The bones underneath were simmering white seas that rolled and shimmered across the constantly melting and rearranging meat of him. His limbs were pseudopodic. His movement that of a softly turning planet drifting across the possibility that is being. Now he floated toward her on a glistening plane of his skin. His potent heat, a shifting locus of limp time-space with infinite energy roiling inside touched her, making her recoil. When he breathed, she saw everything that once was and knew what she knew. "Salam," she said. "Peace be upon you, brother." The nukta that was him twitched. His fried vocal cords were not capable of producing words anymore. I used to think she continued, licking her dry lips, watching the infinitesimal shifting of matter and emptiness inside him. That love was all that mattered. That the bonds that pull us all together are of timeless love, but it is not true. It's never been true, has it? He shimmered and said nothing. I believe in existing in ex nihilo nihil fit. If nothing comes from nothing, we cannot return to it. Ergo, life has a reason and needs to be. She paused, remembering a day when he plucked a sunflower from a lush meadow and slipped it into Gulmine's hair. Gulmine John once was and still is, perhaps inside you and me. Tara wiped her tears and smiled, even if most of us is nothing. The heat thing that her brother was slipped forward a notch. Tara rose to her feet and began walking toward it. The blood in her vasculature seethed and raged. Even if death breaks some bonds and forms others, even if the world flinches, recedes and becomes a grain of sand, Anunnaki watched her through eyes like black holes. Even if we have killed and shall kill, even if the source is nothing if not grief, even if sorrow is the distillate of our life she reached out and gripped his melting amoebic limb he shrank but didn't let go as the maddened heat of her essence surged forth to meet his even if we never come to much even if the sea of our consciousness breaks against quantum impossibilities she pressed his now arm her fingers elongated stretching turning fusing her flame scar rippling and coiling to probe for his like a proboscis so hail tried to smile and in that smile were the heat deaths of countless worlds supernova bursts and the chrysalis sheen of a freshly hatched lava she thought he might have whispered sorry that in another time and universe there were not countless intemperate blood children of his spreading across the earth's face like vitriolic tides ready to obliterate the planet that all this wasn't really happening for one misdirected missile for one careless press of a button somewhere by a soldier eating junk food and licking his fingers but it was tara had glimpsed it in his nukta when she touched him even if she whispered 
as his being engulfed hers in the thermonuclear reaction of matter and antimatter infusion sparked and began to eradicate them both, a puny existence, the conclusion of an agitated conscious universe is insignificant. Remember, remember, brother, that mercy will go on. Kindness will go on. Let there be gentleness, she thought. Let there be equilibrium if all we are and will be can survive in some form. Let there be grace and goodness and a hint of something to come, no matter how uncertain. Let there be possibility, she thought, as they flickered anhylatively and were immolated in some fool's idea of love. That was Osman T. Malik's The Vaporization Enthalpy of a Peculiar Pakistani Family, as read by Mavesh Murad. The recording was originally aired on Tor's podcast, Midnight in Karachi. She reads a lot of books, she loves dystopian fiction, and lives in Karachi, Pakistan, sometimes pretending the two aren't related. A link to her website will be in the show notes. That will be our show for the evening, Children of the Night. Join us again next week for another episode of Tales to Terrify. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full important safety information, visit juviderm.com.